Just before 2 a.m. on May 19, 2012, multiple surveillance cameras showed 22-year-old Michaela Shinnick riding her golden black mountain bike around Lafayette Parship, Louisiana, just a few miles away from her home. Even though it was almost 2 a.m., it wasn't out of the ordinary for Michaela to be on this solo bike ride. She was always on her bike in the morning, afternoon, super late at night. Her and her bike were besties, so much so that she would soon be going on a cross-country adventure to do charitable work with an organization close to her heart that constructs affordable housing. What was out of the ordinary was the white Z71 truck that had been seen following Michaela and the fact that Michaela never made it home, missing her brother Zach's graduation, which was so out of character for her. Michaela had a busy social life, but she would have never flaked on a family function that she committed to, especially being her little brother's graduation. A senior at the University of Louisiana, Michaela, who always went by Mickey, was the brightest light. She was a horse lover. She was educated, loved, loud in a good way. She was bold, full of life with a fighting spirit. All of these things among so many more that made her the person who everybody loved. The evening of Friday, May 18th, which turned into 2 a.m. on Saturday morning when Michaela was seen riding home was just like any other night for Michaela. She had been out enjoying her friend's company, listening to live music, and having a great time before calling it a night before all of her other friends so she can get home to get some rest for her brother's graduation. Before heading home, she rode her bike over to her close friend Brettley's house so they can grab some food and kind of hang out for a little bit. So, you know, they caught up at his place, they went and they grabbed some Taco Bell, they went back to his house, they chatted with a couple of friends on the phone who were trying to convince them to come out, but Michaela stuck to her gun, she's like, nope, I gotta go home, I gotta get some sleep, I have a big day ahead of me tomorrow, and that's what she did. Brightly had offered to give her a ride home since it was almost 2am. Michaela said she was good. She was kind of looking forward to the night ride. It was a super pretty night. She's like, I'm just going to blast some music in my headphones, soak up the fresh air, like I'll be fine. You know, I'll be home in just a few minutes. So halfway home, Mickey would be met with a Z71 truck with evil behind the wheel. Mickey was cruising on her bike when she was bumped off of it, hit from behind, and thrown off the road. Laying there, stunned, trying to make sense of what happened, Mickey sees a man pick up her bike from the side of the road and throw it into the bed of his truck, forcing her into the cab. Well, Michaela, being the fighter that she is, busts out her mace, which she had always carried with her, and sprays this guy directly in his face. And this is a big boy. He's over six feet tall. He's over 230 pounds, where Mickey was just over five feet tall and like 115 pounds max. So while this guy is like fighting through the burning, he actually takes out his gun and he shoots it once, demanding that she get inside the truck right away. Michaela's frantically trying to call for help on her cell phone, but she soon realizes she's in a lot more trouble than she could have ever imagined. Mickey's family woke up that morning ready and excited for the day, excited to celebrate Zach's high school graduation when they realized that Mickey was the only one who wasn't awake in the house. 
And it turned out when they went looking for her, she wasn't even there. But knowing Mickey, they all figured that she was probably out on her bike getting things done before spending the day with her family. So the early morning hours passed and they decided they were going to text Mickey to let her know like, hey, just meet us at the graduation because it was time for them to leave and they didn't want to be late. Well, that text would go unanswered and there wouldn't be a phone call or any communication from Mickey. And she'd never show up to see Zach accept his diploma. For Antic, the family goes back to their home and they start to call everybody they know. And the stories are the same. Either nobody's really heard from her or they hadn't seen her since the night before. And when they call Brettley, he immediately starts to freak out because he realizes that he was the last person to see her before she took that solo ride home around 2 a.m. that early morning. Soon, 1,800 volunteers would search the direct area for any sign of Mickey Shunick, and a $25,000 reward was offered for any information leading to her safe return. There was no sign anywhere of Mickey, and police were desperately trying to locate a white Z71 truck that they had seen following Mickey in the early morning hours of May 19th. This was going to be a task for them, though, because it just so happened that a white Z71 truck was among one of the most popular vehicles registered in that area. Combing through the 3,000-plus white trucks was going to be a task for law enforcement. They had their work cut out for them, and that was just locating this truck. That wasn't even counting the over 1,000 tips that came into the Mickey Shinnick hotline, which was solely dedicated to bringing her home safely. Mickey's sister, Charlie, would become the family's spokesperson. And from the beginning, she said that whoever was involved in Mickey's disappearance would have some sort of physical wounds to them. She begged the community to keep an eye out for anybody with unexplained cuts or maybe bruises. She knew that Mickey would have fought back with anybody who had tried to harm her. Finally, on May 27th, two fishermen along the I-10 came across Mickey's mountain bike partially submerged in water near the Whiskey Bay Bridge. Law enforcement knew right away that that bike was intentionally placed there, 20 miles away from where Mickey was last seen. Mickey's tip line was blowing up. So many tips were coming in and police were checking up on all of them. An officer involved in the investigation says that he remembers wives and girlfriends of men that drove white Z71 trucks calling into the hotline saying that their significant other was acting suspicious the night that Mickey went missing or they weren't home that night and they can't explain where they were and they wanted law enforcement to check up on these men, which is so crazy to me. So many men acting suspicious on that exact night who drove this truck that was in question. It's kind of crazy. Law enforcement's first most solid lead came from that tip line after Mickey's bike was found. And what the caller had to say and the details that they had given, law enforcement knew that they had to jump on this tip right away. The caller had claimed that he had firsthand knowledge of a 19-year-old man with a criminal history who was responsible for Mickey's murder. Rocky McGee, who again was only 19 years old, had a history of driving under the influence and other offenses. They said that that night, Rocky was driving along that same road that Mickey was riding on after a long night of drinking, when he hit Mickey, throwing her off of her bike and killing her. The caller said that Rocky, along with his girlfriend, who was an accomplice to the murder, pulled over, picked up Mickey and her bike, taking both of them to a rural area and disposing of them. 
And the more and more that police looked into this guy, the more and more they thought that they had their man. You see, this would not be the first time that Rocky was involved in an accident while intoxicated. He was actually awaiting a trial for a DUI manslaughter charge that he was facing. Rocky and his girlfriend were brought in and they were interviewed extensively, both of them denying having anything to do with Mickey's case at all. They swore up and down that they had never seen her, they'd never spoken to her, nothing. But regardless of that tipster's story, the detail that they provided, and this seeming like it was Rocky's M.O., there was no DNA evidence found in the truck whatsoever or anything that would link these two people to Mickey's case. So another round of interviews took place with that tipster, and they admitted that the story was completely made up. Police found themselves back at square one, but it wasn't for long. Two callers called into that tip line reporting information on the same individual, and these tipsters were unknown to one another. The first caller would later be identified as the suspect's future father-in-law, and he claimed that his daughter's fiancé had came back from a suspicious trip from New Orleans, and he was pretty beat up. Like, he had stab wounds all over his upper torso. The man seemed to know a lot about his son-in-law, 33-year-old Brandon Scott Laverne, and all of it was shady. He wanted to know why Brandon and his truck disappeared and went to New Orleans that weekend, and where did all of those stab wounds come from? And he had asked Brandon himself. Brandon said that he had just went up to New Orleans to visit a friend and that he had stopped off at a gas station to ask for directions when these guys jumped him, stabbing him. Well, footage from that fight was non-existent. All of the footage was reviewed by law enforcement and Brandon was never there. That never happened. So one week after this call from Brandon's father-in-law, investigators got another call on that tip line. And this time, it was from a car dealership that Brandon had visited looking to buy a new white Z71 truck with very specific details. The salesperson had gotten weird vibes from the get-go and was super weirded out by Brandon's claim that he was just trying to replace his truck that had been stolen with one that looked exactly like it. They were like, okay, this is odd. Like, why wouldn't you upgrade or get a different color? But whatever, like, Brandon was weird. They kind of just brushed it off. But like everybody else, the salesperson had been captivated by Mickey's story, knowing that the suspect in her disappearance had been driving a white Z71 truck. And another thing that caught their attention was Mickey's story had come on the TV inside of the dealership while Brandon was there. And his demeanor got even more weird at that point. He physically became super nervous and agitated as the story played on. The dealership staff put this whole story together, linking his odd behavior and his need for a white Z71 truck to Mickey's story, and they immediately notified law enforcement. So Brandon's truck, which had been, quote, stolen, according to him, was found in Texas and it was charred down to just bare metal. If there was any evidence in that truck that could have linked him to Mickey, it was gone by now. But what did make it out of that suspicious car fire was the license plate on the back of the truck. And investigators were able to match it to some surveillance footage taken of Brandon's truck just a few hours before Mickey went missing. In the footage, you have a clear shot of the back of Brandon's truck, showing the license plate and some things that he had had in the back. The two main items in the back of his truck 
were a four by four piece of wood and a styrofoam ice chest. Both of these items were seen in the unidentified truck linked to Mickey's 2 a.m. disappearance. Like their investigation into Rocky McGee, Brandon Scott Laverne seemed to have a criminal past in line with Mickey's case. And with positive identification of his truck and that surveillance footage, they knew that Brandon was their man, but they could not prove that Brandon was actually the one driving the truck at 2 a.m. So they end up putting Brandon under surveillance for a while. They were hoping that he would give himself away or lead them to Mickey's body, but he seemed to just be going on with life as normal. Cops were able to arrest Brandon on an old charge when he failed to register as a sex offender, allowing them to question him in Mickey's disappearance without any warning. This whole time, Brandon had no idea he was even a suspect. And like they all do, Brandon denied having any involvement in Mickey's case and shutting down the interview by asking for an attorney. Their next tactic was to interview Brandon's fiance. Detectives soon realized that Brandon was leading two completely different lives. She had not one bad thing to say about Brandon, and either did some of his friends. He had treated his fiancée so well. He had never been physical with her, never put his hands on her, and she described him as a gentle, sweet, loving guy. She had absolutely no idea that he was a registered sex offender who had been involved in disgusting, violent crimes in the year 2000. So as the interview went on, investigators end up informing her about the charges that her fiancé is about to face in Mickey's murder, even though they hadn't found Mickey's body yet. And she wanted to know everything. But because the investigation was very much active, they couldn't divulge too much information in this specific case. But they went on to elaborate about Brandon's past. All of this just blew this poor lady's mind. She was so lost. She was hyperventilating in the interrogation room when she found out that he was involved in another murder in a nearby city in 1999. With these two cases against him, Brandon would be facing two death penalty charges. And investigators wanted to use those two charges to their advantage to try to locate Mickey's body. With Mickey's family's permission, Brandon was offered a plea deal to come forward with information on the whereabouts of Mickey and a full confession of the 1999 murder of Lisa Pate. And they would take the death penalty off the table. Within one day, Brandon accepted the terms. On August 7th, 2012, Brandon pointed investigators in the direction of a rural cemetery in the Evangeline Parish. Brandon had dumped Mickey's body there, covering it with sticks and dirt in a shallow grave. He told investigators that he intended on burying her, but because of the stab wounds that he was suffering from, he was just in too much pain and he was too weak to do it. Brandon confessed some horrifying details about Mickey's last moments alive. He told officers that he had been drinking and driving, which to this day they don't believe him, and he said that he accidentally hit Mickey from behind, and trying to help her after she fell from her bike, things went sideways when she pulled out the mace and sprayed it in his face. Officers were like, okay, we believe everything except for the fact that this was an accident. They knew that Brandon had been addicted to hiring escorts, and the night of Mickey's disappearance, he had called a few services, but for whatever reason, he was unable to hire anyone for the evening. So they believed that he then went on the prowl to find an unwilling victim. 
Once Mickey was in the cab of Brandon's truck, she was fighting for her life just how her sister knew she would have. Brandon had taken out the knife, which she was able to grab from him, violently stabbing him multiple times in the upper torso before he was able to regain control of the knife, retaliating against Mickey, stabbing her. At one point while he was driving, he said he was going to dispose of the bike and then of Mickey. He thought he had killed her. He said that he had checked for a pulse and he felt nothing. So he continued to drive, but she came to. She sprung up. She grabbed the knife from him once again. And in the fight for her life, she stabbed him in the chest once more. Brandon said that's when he pulled out his gun, shooting her one time in the head, killing her instantly. So now he's struggling from all of these stab wounds. He ends up driving himself home because he wants to clean himself up. And most importantly, he wants to destroy the clothes that he had on before anybody spotted him. So he changed. He cleaned up the best he could while Mickey was still in his truck. Then he drove her out to the cemetery where he had intended to bury her, but instead just leaving her there and covering her with dirt and sticks, hoping that he would just get away with it. He then took off to New Orleans where he stayed with a friend trying to compose himself and come up with a story. I think he even went to a hospital there for some of those stab wounds. And on this road trip is when he disposed of the knife and gun that he used in Mickey's murder. And with Brandon's full confession, law enforcement had no doubt in their minds that Brandon was responsible for Mickey's death. So after Mickey had went missing, a woman came forward telling authorities that she had encountered who she now knew was Brandon and had gotten spooked when he admitted to her that he often drives around town looking for pretty girls to pick up. She said that she always had this weird feeling and now she knew she could have possibly been a victim of Brandon as well. Brandon is now serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in solitary confinement for the murder and aggravated kidnapping of Mickey and the murder of Lisa Pate. A celebration of life was held with friends, family, and strangers who all gathered to celebrate the many reasons why they love and miss Mickey so much. A memorial bike ride was led by Mickey's mother who rode Mickey's restored mountain bike and they all stopped at the very spot she was met with evil to remember her and release butterflies in her memory. Mickey's sister Charlie is now the founder of a missing persons organization called RA Missing People. I linked her site and her social media in the show notes and on my social media so you guys can check out all of the amazing things that she's doing for missing people and their families. You can also follow the official Mickey Shunick Memorial page on Facebook that is also now dedicated to finding missing people. And there's also a website in her memory and all of this is listed in the show notes and on social media. I want to thank you guys so much today. I'm so sorry I'm congested. I think I've had three full cups of tea while I recorded this episode. I want to thank my two newest patrons, Amy J and Justin A. Thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart. If you guys would like to support the show, you can do so by going to PayPal, buymeacoffee.com, or Patreon. And all of the information is also listed in the show notes or on my social media. I will see you guys back here next week with a brand new episode. Bye guys.